Welcome listeners, but take heed. We will say whatever we need to share our knowledge, thoughts, and joy, and even things that do annoy. So join us now, but be aware. We have a tendency to swear. We'll dial it back a little bit. But frankly, we don't give a shit. Welcome to Just Keep Rolling, a Harry Potter book movie compare and contrast podcast. I'm Ellen, the host you're going to hear do most of the talking for this episode, which is in fact our 50th episode. And I'm Katie, the host who basically doesn't have movie scenes this week. I'm going to get a good nap in, and I'm going to try to say as much as I can whenever I get an opportunity to speak, to make up for the lack of talking I get to do about the movie scenes, since there basically aren't any movie scenes. As you will see, we included a little bit of the movie for me to talk about, but it's not much. So I'm just going to be doing a lot of snark and responding, so I actually get time to talk during this episode. Okay, Katie, we get it. We hear you. How about instead of rambling, you talk about the rolling rehash? Don't mind if I do. <laughs> Last week, we discussed Chapter 10, The Marauder's Map, and its corresponding film scenes. Harry spent another weekend in Madame Pomfrey's VIP suite, Hermione was the only one who didn't call Snape's bluff on the werewolf essay. Fred and George decided that if they had to share screen time, they would also share dialogue. Malfoy pulled a Davy Crockett on his textbook. Yet again, the movie did run so dirty. Hagrid made a terrible valet, while Rose Murda's hammer-wielding led to some mixed Yelp reviews. And betrayal be damned, the real shocker is that Sirius is Harry Potter's dogfather. During episode 49, Twin Tandem Talk, we had two Potter ponderings. One of them was to answer some of Dave's many, many questions about how magical paintings move. Jackson pointed out that in Chamber of Secrets, Colin Creepy mentioned that photos are developed in a potion to make them move. He thinks that maybe the same potion is mixed into the paint. Carly thinks that paintings of people who are alive would totally move, just like the pictures. She just thinks that maybe they gain more of the person's personality and uses Gildor Lockhart's moving paintings all around his office as an example. Max also pointed out the scene in Prisoner of Azkaban where Draco makes the drawing move, so he thinks it'd be like making the painting-slash-drawing sentient and telling it how to move. Though with the portraits, it seems like they have a lot more autonomy. Diana thinks that the paintings are charmed, and only after they are completed do they start moving. She thinks it could possibly be a wizarding afterlife option. But while you're alive, you can still imbue the portraits with some of your consciousness so they are able to do their thing, hopping from frame to frame, stuff like that. Or just straight up use magic personality paint. Yeah, it seems pretty likely that there are different charms or potions to make the pictures do different things. Yeah, I buy that. Our other Potter pondering was to get your thoughts on why the movie omitted the whole secret keeper aspect behind the betrayal of the Potters. Carly initially forgot they omitted the secret keepers, but upon being reminded, she said, what trash. It's such an integral part of the plot. They at least keep the part about Peter selling them out to Moldy Voldy, but she still finds it so disappointing. Jackson said that the Secret Keeper's omission was definitely one of the worst ones. It was one of the most vital pieces of information. Max said that if there's one thing he hated about the books, it was all the bullshit around Secret Keepers. Like, why wouldn't you name a Secret Keeper and then get them to make an unbreakable vow to, I don't know, let's say, not tell Moldywarts? 
He thinks it was a stupid idea and was glad it was left out. I think he's pretty much alone for that one, Mm -hmm. but it definitely makes an interesting point. Though Diana thinks that the history of Pettigrew's friendship with James, Sirius, and Lupin is not as in-depth in the movies versus the books, so it wouldn't have had the same impact as a reveal in the movies versus what a bombshell it was in the book. I can see that, yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for sharing your thoughts. Our trivia question last week was, what is the password Ron says to Sir Cadagan to get into the Gryffindor Tower during the Christmas holidays? Ron says the password, scurvy cur, and Sir Cadagan responds with, and the same to you, sir. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Congratulations once more goes to the sleep-deprived Max Nash. This makes his streak six weeks straight. Though he did originally type scurvy cut. Hashtag thanks autocorrect. (laughs) But he did catch it and correct it in time. Carly said he has the fastest keyboard in the West and must be a cowboy. (laughs) Which is weird because he's the Brit. Right. (laughs) Quincy awarded Max 50 points to Slytherin and then another 10. So Slytherin is up 60 points this week, as it should be. Considering that Quincy is a Gryffindor, he's really stacking the deck against us right now. But I'm not worried. Dumbledore's gonna roll through and give Gryffindor a bunch of extra points right before Slytherin wins. By Dumbledore, do you mean you? Who, me? She says very innocently. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I could use a nap, so let's just keep rolling into Chapter 11, the Firebolt, and the not-really-corresponding and-or lack-thereof film scenes. Chapter 11, the Firebolt. After hearing the news of Sirius Black's betrayal to his parents, Harry isn't quite sure how he makes it back to the castle through Honeydukes and the tunnel but it seems to have taken no time at all. He doesn't understand how anybody, Dumbledore, Hagrid, Mr. Weasley, Fudge, had ever mentioned it to him. Ron and Hermione watch him nervously during dinner, not daring to talk about what they overheard, since Percy is in earshot. When they get back to their common room, Harry sneaks up to his dorm to avoid Fred and George. Once upstairs, he finds the picture album that Hagrid gave him and flips through it until he finds the photo of his parents on their wedding day. And in the picture is Sirius Black, looking very different from the waxy figure that escaped from Azkaban. Remembering that the Dementors don't affect Black, he slams the album shut and pretends to be asleep when Ron peers in to check on him. He doesn't sleep well for real that night, with his thoughts pouring over what he learned and imagining Black talking with Voldemort and killing Pettigrew. The next day, Hermione and Ron comment on how terrible he looks when he finally comes downstairs near lunchtime. Just about everyone else is gone for the holidays, and they finally have a chance to talk about what they overheard. They warn Harry not to do something stupid, like go after Black. Harry tells them what he hears whenever he gets near a Dementor and how it feels now that he's found out it was because a friend betrayed them, and Hermione tries to insist that there's nothing he can do. She says that the Dementors will catch him, and he will go back to Azkaban. Harry reminds her that the Dementors don't affect Black, and Ron wonders if Harry wants to kill him or something. Hermione thinks that's silly, but Harry doesn't know what to say. All he knows is that he can't stand the idea of doing nothing. He points out that Malfoy knows, because of the comment he made about how he'd hunt him down himself if it was him, and Ron angrily asks if he's going to take Malfoy's advice over theirs. He tells Harry that his dad told him that all the Ministry found of Pettigrew was his finger. Harry figures that Malfoy must have known this because his dad is right in Voldemort's inner circle. Ron cringes and asks him to say you-know-who, 
and reminds Harry that Malfoy would love to see him blown up in a million pieces. Hermione pleads with him, telling him that his parents would never want him to go after Black and get hurt. Harry says that he doesn't know what his parents would have wanted, since thanks to Black, he's never spoken to them. Ron changes the subject and suggests they go visit Hagrid. Harry agrees, saying he can ask Hagrid why he never mentioned Black before. This isn't what Ron had in mind, but they all head down through the snow to Hagrid's hut. Ron knocks on the door, but there's no answer, and then they hear some low, throbbing moans. Harry bangs on the door and loudly calls for Hagrid. A sobbing Hagrid opens the door and cries, You've heard! and flings his arms around Harry's neck, who nearly collapses under the weight. Ron and Hermione each seize one of Hagrid's arms and steer him to a chair in the cabin. Hermione asks what's wrong, and Hagrid shoves a letter towards Harry. It explains that Hagrid will not be held responsible for Malfoy's accident, but that an official hearing will be held about the hippogriff, and he must be kept tethered and isolated until then. Hagrid doesn't want to leave Buckbeak alone in the snow, so he has him inside the hut. He's sure that the Committee for the Disposal of Dangerous Creatures is going to say Buckbeak needs to be executed, and the trio all offer to help him put together a good defense. Seeing Hagrid this upset, Harry can't bring himself to ask about Black, and Ron offers to make tea. Hagrid talks about how upset he's been lately, worrying that people don't like his classes and the Dementors making him feel terrible, reminding him what it was like in Azkaban, and talking about how awful it was. Though not a pleasant visit, it did give Harry a distraction from wanting revenge on Black. The trio does research to help build a defense for Buckbeak by the fire in their common room as the rest of the castle gets ready for Christmas. On Christmas morning, Ron wakes Harry by throwing a pillow at him and yelling about presents. As Harry begins to open his presents, he notices a long, thin package on the pile and unwraps it to reveal a firebolt. There is no card, and as Harry and Ron speculate and laugh about who sent it, Hermione shows up in their dormitory carrying Crookshanks. Ron yells at her for bringing Crookshanks around Scabbers, but Hermione is distracted by the firebolt and wonders who sent it to Harry. When she learns that they don't know, she seems worried about it and warns them that he shouldn't ride the broom just yet. Before they can talk any more about Hermione's concern, Crookshanks attacks Ron again, trying to get at Scabbers. The commotion knocks Harry's trunk over and a shrill tinny whistle fills the room. The pocket sneakoscope is loose, spinning and lighting up on the floor. Ron tells Hermione to get that cat out of there, and Harry to shut that thing up. She leaves and Harry stuffs the sneakoscope back into the socks. Harry notes that Scabbers doesn't look too well, and thinks to himself that he just might be nearing the end of his life. This recent showdown between Crookshanks and Scabbers has Ron and Hermione mad at one another again, and they ignore each other all morning. Harry gives up trying to get them to talk to one another and instead inspects his firebolt, which also seems to put Hermione in a bad mood. At lunchtime, they head down to the Great Hall and find one single table set for 12 people in the middle of the hall. Professor Dumbledore greets them with a Merry Christmas and they all sit down. Dumbledore offers a cracker to Snape, who reluctantly tugs it. A large witch's hat with a stuffed vulture on top is revealed with a loud bang. This reminds Ron and Harry of the Bogart, and they grin as Snape frowns and pushes the hat towards Dumbledore, who immediately puts it on. As they are eating, Professor Trelawney surprises them by showing up for the meal. Dumbledore stands and offers to draw her up a chair, but instead of sitting, Trelawney screams that she dare not join them or there will be 13 people which is most unlucky. When 13 dine together, the first to rise will be the first to die. McGonagall tells her that they will risk it, and Trelawney hesitantly sits down. She looks around and asks where Professor Lupin is. 
Dumbledore explains that he is ill again and gestures for everyone to help themselves to food. Trelawney mentions that she's seen that Lupin will not be with them for very long. Dumbledore says that he's sure he's not in any immediate danger and asks Snape about the potion that he made for him. At the end of Christmas dinner, Harry and Ron get up and Trelawney again shrieks, wondering who got up first. McGonagall says that she doubts it will make much difference unless a Mad Axe man is waiting outside the doors. Everyone laughs and Harry asks Hermione if she's coming. She says she wants a quick word with McGonagall so the boys head out without her. Reaching the portrait hole, Ron says, Scurvy Cur to Circa Duggan, and Harry goes straight upstairs to gather his firebolt and the broomstick servicing kit that Hermione got him for his birthday. There really isn't anything to do to service the broomstick, so he and Ron just sit admiring it until Hermione returns with Professor McGonagall. McGonagall says that Miss Granger has told her that he's been sent a broom and asks to see it. Because there was no note at all, she says she's going to have to take it and have it stripped down and checked for jinxes. Ron and Harry are horrified and try to insist that there's nothing wrong with it, but McGonagall says that they can't know that until they've flown it and that's out of the question until it's been checked. She leaves with the broom and Ron turns to Hermione wanting to know why she went to McGonagall. Hermione stands her ground and explains that she thinks, and Professor McGonagall agrees with her, that the broom was sent to Harry by Sirius Black. The movie section picks up with Harry reacting to the news about Sirius Black betraying his parents and still being his godfather. He runs from the three broomsticks and goes past Ron and Hermione, who are sitting on a bench, waiting for Harry to come out. Hermione notices the footprints appearing in the snow and points them out to Ron as Harry just invisibly shoves his way through a group of carolers. As they fall to the snowy ground, Hermione and Ron run through them too, heading after the invisible Harry. They follow the footsteps to a clearing and see them end at a large rock. Faint crying can be heard as Hermione kneels down and reaches up to pull off Harry's invisibility cloak. Harry looks at her and she asks him what happened. He tells her that Sirius Black was their friend and he betrayed them. He screams, he was their friend! And the camera cuts back to a wide shot of the whole snowy scene, with Harry sitting on the rock, Hermione kneeling in front of him, and Ron standing further back. Harry continues speaking, saying that he hopes Black finds him. Hermione looks at him and the camera cuts back to Harry and slowly pushes into his face as he says, because when he does, I'm gonna be ready. When he does, I'm gonna kill him. So as Katie has already made abundantly clear, this chapter just doesn't exist in the movie at all. Yeah. We decided to include Harry's little freak out in the woods in this episode since a sentence or two are somewhat similar to the book. The book chapter starts out talking about how Harry doesn't have any idea how he made it back to the castle. The trip to Honeyduke's cellar and through the tunnel seem to take no time at all. The movie doesn't show him going back at all. He runs from the three broomsticks, still invisible, past Ron and Hermione, who notice his footprints appearing in the snow as he passes. Then Harry just careens through the carolers without any concern, because, again, he's kind of a dick when he's got his cloak on. <laughs> Ron and Hermione follow his footprints until they stop in a clearing. Harry appears to be... Uh, should it be disappears to be? <laughs> disappears to be, sure. <laughs> Anyway, Invisible Harry is sitting on a rock crying as Hermione pulls the cloak off of him. This does not happen in the book at all, but definitely the emotion of this scene and the start of the chapter line up. Harry manages to make it back to Hogwarts, and Ron and Hermione just watch him nervously during dinner because they can't really bring up what they overheard, since Percy's sitting right next to them. 
After dinner, they return to their common room and Harry heads straight upstairs to avoid Fred and George. Once in his dormitory, he pulls out the photo album that Hagrid gave him and looks through the pictures of his parents. He finds one from their wedding and looks at the best man, hardly recognizing him as the man who escaped Azkaban. Well, you know, the real reason Harry didn't recognize Black in his parents' wedding photo is because it wasn't Crazy Gary Oldman. Obviously. <laughs> Crazy. But looking at the pictures upsets Harry even more, knowing that the Dementors don't seem to affect Black. He slams the album shut, then pretends to be asleep when Ron checks in on him. He spends the rest of the night unable to sleep as a hatred courses through him like poison, and he imagines Black betraying his parents and killing Peter Pettigrew. By the time he actually gets up and heads down to the common room, it's nearly lunchtime and everyone else has left for the holidays. Except for Ron and Hermione, who acknowledge how awful he looks. This is where the conversation in the movie slightly lines up with the book, though it is completely a stretch to call it a conversation. It's more of a monologue after Hermione asks what happened. Harry tells her that he was their friend, and he betrayed them. Then he screams, He was their friend! And I do love when we get little previews of Caps Lock, Harry. There are definitely little moments of it. Until we get to the fifth book when the Caps Lock button gets stuck in the on position. Mm-hmm. But Harry obviously doesn't have to explain to Hermione what happened in the book since they overheard the whole thing, too. So it's definitely a conversation in the book. A conversation that Hermione and Ron seem to have practiced as they tell Harry not to do anything stupid. Yeah. You mustn't go doing anything stupid. Like what? Like exactly what everyone has been telling you not to do since this all fucking started. Promise me you won't go looking for Black. Right? Why would I go looking for a nutter who wants to kill me? Because you got a history of doing it, bro. That's why. Because we've met you. It's your fourth greatest talent. Mm-hmm. Facts. And the other three only help with the fourth, so there's that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in the movie, Harry just finishes his ranty monologue by saying that he hopes Black does find him, because he's gonna be ready. Because when he does, he's gonna kill him. And that's all for the movie scene that somewhat corresponds to the book. Night, guys. <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't get the details right at all. Harry responds to Ron and Hermione's pleas to not do anything stupid by telling them about hearing his mother screaming and pleading with Voldemort. When he mentions finding out that someone who was supposed to be their friend betrayed her, Hermione cuts him off to say that there's nothing he can do and that the Dementors will catch Black and take him to Azkaban. In the movie, Hermione just kneels there and tries to comfort him, while Ron stands in the background. Neither of them say anything. The only thing that is true to the book is Harry's anger and the fact that he wants to kill Black. But that isn't even entirely accurate either. Mm. The anger, sure. But book Harry comments on how the Dementors don't affect Black like normal people, and Ron tensely wonders if Harry is saying that he wants to kill Black. Hermione thinks this is silly, and Harry just doesn't answer because he has no idea what he actually does want to do. He just knows that doing nothing is unbearable. Which probably is just too nuanced to show in the film, since we don't get Harry's inner monologue. It's definitely way easier to show us Harry's state of mind with the dramatic outbursts. Yeah. Harry also brings up the comment that Malfoy made about how if it was him, he'd hunt Black down himself. And this just makes Ron mad, who wants to know if Harry's really going to take Malfoy's advice over his and Hermione's. He also tells Harry that the biggest bit of Pettigrew that they found 
was his finger. Which is exactly what Fudge said in the previous movie scene, when the book had just said a few fragments. So that information was at least accurate to the book, just taken a bit out of order. I feel like we're going to start noticing a lot more of that as we go on. Mm-hmm. Harry just does that stubborn thing where he completely ignores that Ron is trying to tell him that Black is a madman and keeps on keeping on saying that Malfoy's dad must have told him since he was right in Voldemort's inner circle. At this point, Ron angrily tells Harry to say you know who. Say you know who, will you? Or, and I'm just spitballing here, Ron, how about you stop being such a little bitch about a name? I mean, he 100% gets that from his dad. This is also the third time this chapter that Harry has dropped a Voldemort and it's barely started. But maybe Ron just doesn't like when people say Voldemort because he finds the silent T at the end to be pretentious as fuck. I feel personally attacked. I mean, shoe fits. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. But Harry goes on talking about how the Malfoys obviously knew that Black was working for Voldemort, with Ron trying to tell him that Malfoy would love to see him blown into a million bits, because he's just hoping he'll get himself killed before he has to play him in Quidditch again. That's actually probably completely accurate. They couldn't really show this in the movie, since Quidditch was all but eliminated from the film, as we will talk a bit more about later. Yeah. Then Hermione tells Harry that Black did a terrible thing, but he shouldn't put himself in danger. It's what Black wants, and it's not what Harry's parents would want. Harry tells her that he doesn't know what his parents want, since, thanks to Black, he's never spoken to them. I mean, come on, Harry. Your parents literally sacrificed themselves to save you. Do you honestly think they want you to put yourself in harm's way? Right. I mean, he's a melodramatic 13-year-old. Stubborn little punk. He is. (laughs) He's being bullheaded, Harry. The precursor to Caps Lock Harry is bullheaded, Harry. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's just the always hairy mode. (laughs) Oh, true. Yeah. I wish that at least this part of the conversation had been included in the movie, rather than Hermione saying, you know, absolutely nothing. I know. It's definitely far more Hermione to share her opinion about something and encourage Harry to do the right thing than the sarcastic, sassy Hermione the movie keeps showing us. Mm Mm-hmm. She'll definitely start to have those moments later in the book, and I have some thoughts about it that I want to share then. But I feel like the movie definitely lost Hermione's character in an effort to make things funnier. In this scene, it was also probably not to take away from the emotion of Caps Lock Harry, but I definitely agree with you. It was weird the way Hermione said nothing and Ron just stood awkwardly off in the distance. It made for a neat wide shot, but I don't see why Ron wouldn't have approached, so I agree. Mm -hmm. In the book, Ron was just as adamant as Hermione about Harry not doing anything stupid. And he finally changes the subject, suggesting they go visit Hagrid. Harry, of course, immediately agrees, saying that he can ask Hagrid why he never mentioned Black before, which is not what Ron had in mind. Mm -mm. Harry has such a one-track mind in the books. Like, I don't think the movie really showed us that at all. The movie scene got the emotion, the anger, but, I mean, that was it. He's really quite stubborn and obsessive, and that plays a really big role in his character. As we said, bullheaded Harry. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's just talking about the differences in what the movie actually included. Mm -hmm. Because everything else in this chapter is all but missing from the movie. There are a couple of points that are alluded to later in the film, but, I mean, my actual section ends here for this episode. So, I'm gonna take a nap. You know, wake me if you need me. Consider this me waking you, because I can't do this without you. Well, we know that, but... 
I literally spend all day talking to myself because the kids on the computer probably just log in and then turn the camera off and walk away. (laughs) So don't make me do this episode talking to myself. Stay awake, please. Fine. If I must. When they get to Hagrid's, they knock and don't get a response at first. They hear crying, so Harry knocks louder. The book actually describes the crying as low, throbbing moans. And I'm not going to lie, if I heard low, throbbing moans coming from Hagrid's, I'm running back to the castle in a hurry. Like, I'm out. Yeah, I totally thought the same thing when I was summarizing the chapter. What an awkward way to describe that. Right? That's what I'm saying. At least it didn't include, like, Marvin Gaye's Get It On is playing, too. Right? Oh, ew. But it is, in fact, Hagrid crying. (laughs) Which we learn for sure when he answers the door and just throws his arms around Harry's neck, bawling something about how, You've heard! They hadn't actually heard. And Hermione asks what happened, and he just pushes a letter towards Harry that says he's not in trouble for Malfoy's injury, but the Hippogriff will need to stand trial. Hagrid is certain that it won't end well for Buckbeak, hence the crying. Okay, so while I wish they would have kept the Hagrid scene in... I kind of do see a bit why it was left out. It didn't really do much to further the plot when we got the gist of everything in the later scene after the hearing with Hagrid in the big hairy suit. Yeah, we'll talk more about that when we get to that scene. But I will say that it does give all of the details that are necessary to further the plot along. Mm -hmm. It just leaves out the fact that the Golden Trio love Hagrid so much they're willing to help him research defense for Buckbeak. Which, in turn, ends up being the distraction that Harry needs to stop constantly brooding about Black. Which are definitely nice details, but, I mean, honestly, they aren't really necessary to the main plot. It also gives us some more insight on just how awful Dementors are from Hagrid's perspective. And we learned that even though he was innocent, they weren't keen on letting him go when he was cleared of opening the Chamber of Secrets. Which, again, doesn't really further the main plot. It's already really clear just how awful those Dementors are. And they made them fucking fly. That does definitely ramp up the awfulness. Yeah. But the book has the trio keep busy through the holidays doing research for Buckbeak's defense. And the entire castle is decorated for Christmas and starting to smell of the delicious cooking for the Christmas dinner. Then, on Christmas morning... Ron throws a pillow at Harry to wake him up for presents, and they go through the usual tearing through of presents. Ron gets another maroon jumper from his mom, and Harry gets a scarlet one with a lion, as well as some other goodies. I'm a little bummed that we didn't get to see the Weasley sweaters in this film, because, you know, I still want one. Right? Mm Mm-hmm. We should try and find ourselves Weasley sweaters. Ooh. But as Harry is moving the presents from Mrs. Weasley aside, he notices a long, thin package that he rips open to find the firebolt that he had been coveting so much in chapter four. I bet in all those conversations he had with himself, trying to talk himself out of emptying his Gringotts vault to buy the broom, he never in his wildest dreams imagined he'd get it as an anonymous Christmas gift. Oh, for sure. Harry and Ron are both completely awed by the broom, but have no idea who sent it, since there wasn't a card or a note or anything. Harry is sure that it wasn't the Dursleys, And Ron speculates that it might have been Dumbledore since he gave him the cloak. Which, as Harry points out, had belonged to his father and didn't cost him hundreds of galleons to give it to him. And Ron thinks that's why he couldn't say it was from him. So people like Malfoy didn't say he was playing favorites. 
He then gloats about how jealous Malfoy will be when he sees Harry's new broom. And then he makes Harry laugh by saying that the broom could have been from Lupin. I mean, no one says that Ron was supposed to be in Ravenclaw. No, he was not. Harry points out that Lupin couldn't afford to buy the broom or he'd buy himself some new robes. And Ron just casually mentions that he was away the last time he was supposed to be ill, since he wasn't in the hospital wing while he was there serving his detention and scrubbing out all the bedpans. Obviously, this couldn't have been included in the film, since, you know, Ron never stood up for Hermione when Snape called her an insufferable know-it-all, and therefore never got that detention. It is a very subtle clue to something weird going on with Lupin, but the movie has at least included its own version of those pretty much throughout the whole movie. Yeah, that's true. Minus the subtlety. (laughs) Some of them have been subtle. Eh, sure. As the boys are laughing about the broom, Hermione comes into their dorm carrying Crookshanks. Ron is not happy about this, but Hermione is too distracted by the firebolt to respond to his annoyance. She asks who sent it, and when she learns that they don't know, her face falls. As much as I hate to agree with Hermione, she does make a really valid point about the firebolt being suspicious. Oh, for sure. I'd say it amazes me that Ron and Harry aren't suspicious about it, but they are clearly just too excited about the International Standard Broom to give it much thought. Ah, boys and their sports ball. Yep. But the attention to the broom is gone when Crookshanks attacks Scabbers yet again. Surprise, surprise. Honestly, I can't even blame Ron for being so upset with Hermione over this. Like, even if you don't believe that your cat has it out for your friend's rat, you know that he's a cat that chases rats and has previously tried chasing Scabbers. Why would you bring him into his dorm? That's Hermione's Gryffindor showing, I think. The stubbornness and the lack of thinking before acting. Eh. But the whole debacle ends up knocking over Harry's trunk and dislodging the pocket sneakoscope from Uncle Vernon's socks, where it begins to immediately spin, light up, and whistle. Had they left in the deleted scene from the Great Hall after the first Hogsmeade trip when Ron gave it to Harry, then they could have actually included this part. But instead, they decided to do nothing with the sneakoscope at all. Yeah. At this point in the book, we also get a good look at Scabbers, who was once a very fat rat, and is now quite skinny with bald patches in his fur. I really wish the movie had shown us this. Scabbers' stress level is such a great clue to this story. And the book does a pretty good job making us think that it's mostly related to being hunted by a cat that seems to have it out for him. Mm-hmm. With the addition of the sneakoscope going off more than once... There's a lot of foreshadowing surrounding his part in the story than the movie gives. Yeah, the movie never even gives us any reason to wonder about Scabbers. Beyond the fact that they included the bit where Mrs. Weasley had to run him to run as the train was leaving. Even Crookshanks chasing him didn't seem out of the norm for a cat and a rat. When the book definitely played that up a lot more. It really did. But then they all hang out in the common room, Ron and Hermione not speaking to one another, and Harry inspecting his new broom, which seems to annoy Hermione as much as Ron was. (laughs) Then they all move to the Christmas dinner at lunchtime, where all the tables but one are moved to the side. There are only three other students who stayed for the holidays, plus Dumbledore, McGonagall, Snape, Sprout, Flitwick, and Filch. I feel like I would love to stay at Hogwarts over break. Like, I'd miss my family, but it would be so amazing to just feel like I had the castle practically all to myself, you know? Yeah, it's kind of crazy how few people stayed this time around. Mm Mm-hmm. 
it would be so cool to have a place like Hogwarts just all to you. Right. I would love that. But this dinner scene is among my favorites of all of my favoritist scenes. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. (laughs) They all sit down to dinner and Dumbledore greets them and then immediately offers crackers and he makes Snape participate. I would have loved to have seen this scene. Oh my god. Dumbledore's reaction to crackers is pretty much exactly me. Like, they might be my favorite thing at Christmas. And the vulture hat coming out of Snape's cracker has to be one of the best moments. Especially since Snape already seemed super unhappy to take part in such a silly Christmas tradition in the first place. Right? And I especially love that Dumbledore just immediately puts it on when Snape pushes it towards him. He's like, get this thing away from me, and Dumbledore's just like, my hat. (laughs) Sorry the way you said that. (laughs) My hat. It just feels so Dumbledore. It does. It really does. (laughs) At this point, Professor Trelawney shows up to join them. You okay? I love this part. (laughs) Yeah, I just love this part so much. And I know this doesn't have a ton of bearing on the plot, but it would have been so much fun to see this scene come alive. Especially since it's another one of those moments that people like to cite as being evidence that she can actually predict the future. Yeah, as long as you ignore the first part when she says that she was crystal gazing and saw herself going to join them. Yeah, because it's clearly the fates that determine where she has dinner, not herself at all. (laughs) Oh, clearly. I also love that Dumbledore stands to welcome her and says, let me draw you up a chair, and then literally uses his wand to draw a chair in midair. (laughs) Again, it's just so Dumbledore. He's like the king of dad jokes. (laughs) I know. I love it. But then, instead of sitting, Trelawney screams, saying she dares not, because then there will be 13 at the table, and when 13 dine, the first to rise will be the first to die. Which is the prediction that I was referring to. Because Scabbers was with Ron, and also eating, so technically there already were 13 people dining together. And since Dumbledore was the first to rise, well, we will talk more about that later. Yup. <laughs> so... I think I might be the most upset that this part was left out because McGonagall's sass towards Trelawney is quite possibly among the most amazing things that I have ever read. (laughs) First, she just tells her they're going to risk it. So sit down. Well, the turkey was getting cold. She was probably hangry. Which is totally understandable. But then as dinner goes on, Trelawney asks about Lupin's absence and Dumbledore shares that he's ill again and McGonagall says, but surely you already knew that, Sybil. Bam! That's some top shelf sass right there. Right? (laughs) And then, then, Trelawney says, certainly I knew Minerva, but one does not parade the fact that one is all-knowing. I frequently act as though I'm not possessed of the inner eye, so as not to make others nervous. And McGonagall simply says, that explains a great deal. Oof. Trelawney might want to get some ice for her inner black eye after that one. Damn. (laughs) Youch. We also learn that Snape made more of the potion for Lupin again, and that Dumbledore expects he will be just fine. Poor dude keeps missing the holidays. Like, what a shitty schedule for the full moon that year. No kidding. Mm-hmm. But the dinner goes on for another two hours, with Trelawney acting almost normal. Until the end, when Harry and Ron stand up at the same time, and she completely freaks out, wondering which one of them stood up first. McGonagall chimes in with a, 
I doubt it will make much difference unless a mad axe man is waiting outside the doors to slaughter the first into the entrance hall. Ooh, McGonagall is Scottish for snark. She is the queen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At this point, Harry asks Hermione if she's coming, but she says she wants a word with Professor McGonagall, and the boys head out without her. They get to the portrait hole and find Sir Cadogan having his own Christmas party with awesome monks, several of the previous Hogwarts headmasters, and his fat pony. Yet another missed opportunity for some Sir Cadogan hilarity! I know. Ron says the password, scurvy cur. Which was our trivia question. Mm-hmm. And Sir Cadogan responds with, and the same to you, sir. <laughs> then he lets them in, and Harry immediately goes to collect his firebolt again, so that he and Ron can drool over it some more. But not long after that, Hermione returns with Professor McGonagall, who asks to see the broom, and ends up telling Harry that she has to take it and have it stripped down and checked for jinxes, since they don't know who sent it to him. Harry, of course, insists that nothing is wrong with it. Harry's inability to see that the firebolt could have actually been sent with malicious intent is exactly why I'm surprised he's lasted as long as he has. I mean, honestly, Hermione is exactly why he's lasted as long as he has. Well, there is that. But McGonagall takes the broom, and the boys round on Hermione, wondering why she went to a teacher. She explains that she thinks, and McGonagall agrees with her, that the broom was sent by Sirius Black. Now, obviously, the movie does have a scene later on that alludes to this, but it's so completely different and pointless. Right. Mm -hmm. We will talk more about it when we get to that part two. But for now, we've reached the end of the chapter. As there basically was no movie section, we have no new actors to talk about. So, this will bring us to our Potter pondering. We're gonna have two again. In general, we want to know how you feel about this entire chapter being left out of the movie. And for funsies... We also want to know how you would react if you were sent an insanely expensive gift anonymously. I may not think much of it. However, I'm not a 13-year-old wizard who's got, like, a madman after me. So, like, if I was in Harry's position, I would definitely think twice about it. That would definitely be creepy. But me being me, I'm inconsequential, so. It'd still be weird to get an anonymous gift, especially a very expensive one. Yeah, but that's a pony I'm not looking into the mouth of. <laughs> I'm cool. I feel like it would depend on what the gift was. Yeah. Like, if I got really expensive lingerie from an anonymous person, oh. that's fucking creepy. That is. That is really creepy. Especially if it's, like, exactly the right size. That's weird. Right. So I think it depends on what the gift is. True. But if it's a car, fuck yeah, I'm taking that. If it's a car, does it come with the title with my name on it? There you go. Because I don't want to be accused of stealing a car. True. But find the post on our Facebook page and share your thoughts. We look forward to reading them. This will bring us to our Sorting Hat story, which is from Angel McLean. She writes, My wand is 10 inches cherry wood with a phoenix feather core, slightly yielding flexibility. And my Patronus is a Pine Martin. Fuck is a Pine Martin? We'll have to look that up. We will. When I was seven, I found the first one in my school library, and reading was my favorite thing. Since I had a bad home life, I liked getting lost in books. I was overly advanced in reading, been reading since I was four, so I decided I was going to try reading it. I struggled, but kind of understood it enough. Then when I was ten, I reread it and loved it even more. So a Pine Martin is in the Badger Weasel Stoat family. Oh, look at that! They look meatier than stoats. You're like... 
Patronus cousins with Justin and Ellen. Angel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's wait. pretty adorable. Hang on. Hang on. Were you just essentially saying that you think Hagrid should be eating Pine Martins instead of Stoats? <laughs> Is that what you were getting at there? I was merely comparing the difference between the two. <laughs> yeah, but using the phrase, they look a bit meatier than Stoats. <laughs> I'm sorry for your Patronus, Angel. Anyway. I love how the books have made kids want to read, even if it was slightly above their reading level. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Angel. It's so nice that you were able to use reading as an escape. A lot of our keepers have shared similar stories as well. Yeah. And if any of you other keepers out there listening would like us to read your Sorting Hat story on a future episode, you can email it to us at justkeeprolling at gmail.com. Let us know your house, wand, the wood, core, and length, how you got into Harry Potter, and anything else that you might want to share with us. You can also just find our pin post on Facebook at JKR Podcast and share it there or message it to us. And that'll bring us to this week's trivia question. In the book, when did they schedule Harry's first anti-dementor lesson with Professor Lupin? The prize for the first one who responds with the correct answer and the code word hashtag expecto patronum will get a bitch is a witch, motherfucker's a wizard, a just keep rolling, that's not how it happened in the book, that's not how it happened in the movie, or a pride sticker. Another way to get a sticker is to rate and review us. If you're an Apple person, you can do it through the Apple Podcast or iTunes app. If you don't have Apple, you can write us a recommendation on our Facebook page. Then email us at justkeeprolling at gmail.com to let us know you did, and we'll get back to you to figure out which sticker you want and where to send it. Don't forget to find us and follow us on Facebook at JKR Podcast and Twitter and Instagram at Just Keep Rolling. Following us on Podbean at justkeeprolling.podbean.com will get you the episode as early as possible and give you a leg up in answering the trivia question. If you would like to support us as a patron for extra perks, you can go to patreon.com slash justkeeprolling. As always, any support you can give is greatly appreciated. You can check out the awesome Just Keep Rolling and Harry Potter-related merch that our patrons have helped us produce so far on our website, justkeeprolling.com, as well as find the links to everything we mention at the end of our episodes to make them easier for you to find. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're shooting to have the first of our cooking show episodes up at the beginning of October. It's in a slightly less than rough edit form, but it's really starting to come together. That's the important part. (laughs) We also post our weekly podcast episodes, monthly blooper reels, vlogs, and other random videos. And I know we keep mentioning this tour that we were going to post. It is genuinely going to happen on Saturday. Along with Ellen and I actually recording in person and in the new recording studio. And with our new microphones. Pics and video to follow. Pics or it did not happen. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and join us next week when we talk about Chapter 12, the Patronus and the corresponding film scenes. Thanks for listening. We hope you hear us again. I'm Katie. I'm Ellen. Until the next time, just, just keep, keep rolling. rolling.